On this week's Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, the gay gene. If you've had Ebola in the past and you're having unprotected sex, you may really want to keep listening to the show. RNAi, what does the I stand for? Interesting. Also, the war on science. Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 106, recorded on October 15, 2015, and I am proud to say, fellow listeners, if you've been with us from the beginning, you've heard over 100 hours of recording at this point. Yay! Wow, what a, what a great way to spend your time. <laughs> 100 hours of us droning on here. Last week, we crossed over the 100-hour mark, and we keep going. So uh, you here with us, Carolina Balkenbush. She is our fabulous dietitian and soon-to-be more in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi. Hi. (laughs) 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 Uh, We also have with us Christian Copley-Salem, PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology at the University of Reno. Yay! Now you do it, Christian. And with us as always is our our fantastic, wonderful host, Scott Barnett, who is a PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and a guy Yay! with a beard. Hooray! <laughs> I am extra beardy. Uh, speaking of which, I so I've tried many things to tame my beard. I have what Slippers? many would consider a very manly beard. It is a full, thick, uh, either pleasure or abomination, depending on your preferences. This week, I got something. So I've tried, like, combs, and they're kind of staticky. I've tried, like, wooden combs, and nothing really tamed it until, sounds like a commercial, I got a beard brush. It basically looks like a boot brush that you put a few little drops of oil on there, and you brush your hair like I'm a a horse's mane and the face, and it completely... It doesn't like make it like a slicked back 50s hairstyle, but it keeps it tamed in, and I'm very, very pleased with it. Everyone's been asking me about what I do to keep my beard so nice, so I thought I would tell you. Hey, Nobody's you asking me that. <laughs> <laughs> you do basic human hygiene. Congratulations. <laughs> so, uh, did you guys do anything fun this week? I did not crash my laptop. <laughs> That's a lie. Well, no, this week I didn't. <laughs> Um, actually, I thought you crashed it with the update. Well, today I tried to update. Um, the last week I wasn't on the show because that day I crashed my boot sector on my laptop trying to make a dual boot with Linux and Windows. And um, this week I had everything dialed in and I was super excited with um, the Linux version Ubuntu 14.04. And today it asked me, would you like to update to 15.04? And I said, why, yes, I would love to do that. And I hit yes, and it corrupted the entire um, Linux kernel, and I had to go back to the drawing board and fix it. But it was fixed, so yay. Wah, wah. Crashing your boot sector sounds like something you'd proposition someone to do at a bar. <laughs> you, want, you want to crash my boot sector? Maybe. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe. Caroline, anything fun for you? There were two things that got me through this week. One is that I discovered the combination of Diet Dr. Pepper and coffee is not as disgusting as you would think it would be. And it gave me enough caffeine to get through my studying this week. Oh Your MCAT class studying? <laughs> yes. It's been, it's been pretty heavy. There's been, there's been a lot of content. 
I'm enjoying it. So, I, I enjoy having a break from the podcast, though. Um, I love that the nutritionist is alternating pounding Dr. Pepper and coffee. Uh, not I alternating, also, combining. Oh, geez. Okay, well, that <laughs> dovetails very nicely into my second point, Carolina. If you're to the point of your sleep-deprived weariness where mixing Dr. Pepper and coffee not only seems like a good idea, but it actually tastes good, you need to get a few more hours of sleep. Just throwing that I out don't there. don't know where to find those hours. I don't know. But interesting fact, uh, I did do a Google search for caffeine pills today when I was really tired. Didn't buy them. But one of the suggested uh, items to buy with the caffeine pills was uh, beard oil, actually. So it might be right up your alley. (laughs) Is those the right commonly purchased together? Yeah. I mean, for those those all-night marathon beard grooming sessions, you really need to be alert. Buy these two items together. Save 20%. (laughs) Anyway, the second thing that got me through this week was a very sweet email from one of our listeners, Laura, complete stranger, wonderful, wonderful woman who encouraged me to uh, keep on pushing through these MCAT studies. So thank you so much, Laura. That really made my week. Awesome. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. We love emails. Uh, Generally, we love the positive ones more. Although, I don't think I've ever gotten an overtly negative email. It takes a very special kind of person to go out of their way to say something negative about a free podcast. But I will say um, uh, they're they're often, there's little suggestions (laughs) peppered in there. And being human beings, you tend to forget all the good stuff and you remember the negative stuff about us talking too long at the beginning, which we're doing again right now. Uh, But I don't get to talk, you believe it or not, listeners, I don't get to talk to these people that much during the week. Christian, certainly a little bit more than Carolina, but I truly am. We are all, are all catching up on each other's lives during the beginning of this. It's not a, it's not a, a nothing thing for us, but anyways, yes, they're peppered. So I forget all the good emails when they're peppered with the stuff. It's talking too long. And, and a couple of people mentioned my tendency to make that noise, oh, really? which I very see now. Oh yeah. And I'm very conscious of it now and I'm trying not to do it, but it's a very difficult Thing to undo because I will when I'm thinking or if I'm in the middle of a thought I'll go it's a it's a very just fluid natural thing for me to do but it definitely I'm, I understand why it catches people and so I'm trying to learn not to do it but it's a uh, it's challenging to do that well so. in case nobody ever noticed it before you're welcome <laughs> and now you'll hear it every time <laughs> to everyone of course so I didn't do anything fun my iPhone 6s plus just arrived two hours ago and I've been setting that Did up you get and, the rose gold? Uh, uh, oh, I did it. I just did it. And again. Uh, so, <laughs> no, the second time was me. Anyway. Uh, no, I got the space gray because I'm boring and I like the space gray. And I did get the light leather case. And this is all stuff nobody cares about. Nope. So we do not need to spend a lot of time on it. <laughs> With that being said, Christian. Scott. I'm trying to remember what happens next. Do you have any idea? No. Yes, you do. I'm being coy. Ha, that's cute. <laughs> adorable, adorable. I think we're going to do Science Blast. Science Blast. Beep, 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 beep. Beep. Yay. If we do it all at the same time, it makes me a little less self-conscious, just, <laughs> that, especially when I completely right. commit like that. So, I'm just saying. So our, our our lesson here is to not do it at the same time to maximize your self-consciousness. We do specialize in being awkward, so I suppose awesome. that's hard not to do anyways. So fan. we have tons to talk about today, lots of fun stuff here. I want to do one really brief thing, and then we're going to have Christian move into his. 
But a listener from Canada of ours, we have listeners in like half a dozen countries, at least that I know. We've gotten emails from at least three or four countries. So super, super cool. We love all you guys. But Brad from Canada wrote uh, on our Facebook page, which is beta sand, uh, facebook.com slash beta sandwich. Encourage you to contact us on there. ASAP Science, which is a really, I've always followed ASAP Science. They're really cool. I didn't know they were Canadian. They're a Canadian group of people, and they put out tons of videos about little three to five minute little animations where they draw on boards and they explain concepts and science, and they just do an absolutely fabulous job. And they put one out recently, which I didn't watch, called War on Science, and Brad put it out there just for us to take a look at. And the video basically poses a question, and the question is, how do we make a world, the world a better place through science? And it mentions how science and society are at odds sometimes, especially in history. And science can be rejected by society. I mean, you look at modern examples being like measles coming back and global warming warming denying and all these things that just don't make any sound science sense are sound science sense. That's a good one. Sound science sense. Uh, They are still being portrayed throughout the media and throughout individuals as valid scientific theories, as in global warming doesn't exist. And so anyways, he also brings up how science funding is in a slump, the ASAP science video. And, um, you know, I know this as well as anyone. I flew to Washington, D.C. last year through a group called the ASBMB, the Association for the Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And they paid for us to speak, fly out there and speak to members of Congress about how how bad the funding situation is becoming the sciences and how the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health, and how they should be getting more money to fund science and all this sort of stuff. So, yes, it is bad universally, but it is really bad in Canada right now. And uh, as I'd mentioned, ASAP Science is made by a very talented and passionate group of the Canadians here. And the reason they made the video, or at least one of them, was because a man named Stephen Harper, and if you're the Americocentric person that most of us are, myself included, he is the Canadian Prime Minister. He's the President of Canada. He slashed science funding in Canada like by orders of magnitude. And he did something, in my opinion, over the last few years, and a lot of people's opinion, which is much, much more egregious. He made it so scientists had to get pre-approval from their minister's office before speaking to uh, members of the national and international media. So you needed clearance to speak to media if you were a science from the government, not from the university, wherever you are, from the national government had to clear it. They also needed to get permission to travel to certain conferences and it may be denied if it was against kind of the party stance. If it was known to be a conference that was very pro-global warming, you might not be allowed to even travel to the conference. And worst of all, and to me this is crazy, the Canadian government, uh, when they did a poll, 25% of all scientists that they polled reported that they were required to either omit data or change data for non in their research for non-scientific reasons which is just totally insane the idea being that is the government is funding the science therefore the government thinks that they have complete oversight in what is said and what is reported and of course this is hugely anti-scientific and it will it's a it's a terrible terrible thing right and you know as i've said in the past i think that science has a pr problem you know, we don't do a very good job of explaining what we do, why we do, why what we do is so critically important. And I think for a lot of scientists, it's kind of the proofs in the pudding. Well, look at how old we're living. Look at all these vaccines. Look at these cool battery technologies so you can drive Teslas and do all these things. We think that it's self-evident, all of the good work we're doing, but that's not the case. We have to continually be on the proactive war front, so to speak, to to ensure that people understand what we do is important. We need to convey that in a way that is 
approachable and digestible by non-science audiences here. And the reason I didn't initially even want to watch the video is because I hate the term war on science. As a matter of fact, I hate the term war on anything. War on Christmas, war on religion, war on ever, because it seems needlessly kind of grandiose and more than anything to me, it's just kind of a grab for headlines. But having watched the video and having learned a little bit more about the situation in Canada, this to me is one of the rare exceptions where it really is, at least in Canada, a true war on science by the by the governing bodies. You know, the Canada, and one of the reasons they put this video out was, and you should all watch it. I'll put a link on our website. You should definitely go 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 see it out. The one of the reasons they just posted this is because the Canadians vote for their next prime minister on October nineteenth, if if that's correct. I'm almost certain it's October nineteenth, and things need to change up there. So the video was a very good and very important thing, and I'm afraid it's. My concern with the video is that it's largely preaching to the choir. If you're watching ASAP Science, if you're Googling YouTube for videos dealing with science, you're probably already on board and understand the importance of the research. But hopefully some Canadians out there who didn't know how bad it's gotten from a political standpoint will see the video and they'll help get rid of this Harper guy because he has really, really screwed over the scientific community in Canada. And it needs to change here. So uh, that's pretty much it there. I'll just say that, like, generally speaking, though, you know, I said I don't like the word war on science and I still don't like it because I believe that there's this within our society there's this natural equilibrium that we all need to find or needs to be found within the society and science funding requires capitalists who only care about making money which then feeds the economy and allows science research to go on and while I have a great kind of distaste for people like Jenny McCarthy and her anti-vaxxer friends there will always be people on those fringes that are pushing and pulling at science or whatever the economy religion whatever your your argument or or case de jour is and this is important not just for a free society but it's important for for uh, for i think the health of a general population or even the world population so it's only when that equilibrium gets upset like it is in Canada right now where these grassroots efforts like really need to get out there and fix the problem. So generally I don't I don't mind the fact that there's in my opinion crazy people out there trying to mess things up a little bit because it's all part of that natural equilibrium, the freedom of expression sort of thing, but it does require us to get on on board and to into and to really focus on what's important. And when, when you have this case as it is in Canada right now, we all need to get there and we all need to help these guys out here. So unfortunately, we can't vote for your prime minister, which I'm sure you guys are all thrilled we can't vote for your prime minister down here in America. But if you're Canadian, do the right thing. That's all I have to say on it. Hooray. Unless you guys have input. I always have input. <laughs> input opinion here. Yeah. No, I agree. I I tend to get more into the war on things debate than maybe some people do. You enjoy it as a pastime. It's not stressful or weird for you. It's kind of part of your natural being. You you enjoy <laughs> argument in conflict on a certain level. And it's not... I do. It's not a, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's absolutely like... It's just part of who you are. You enjoy debating things. I do. I, I like arguing about things. And I right. think that argument is one of the things that drives science. And... I don't mean like standing in a room yelling at each other kind of argument, but I mean disagreement over ideas and, you know, even Scott gets the pleasure of sitting down the hallway from me and my boss when we argue about things. Um, but I enjoy it. I like being able to argue with someone and not have them get incredibly, I always use the word butthurt, but I like it when I can argue with someone and they don't get butthurt about it. So 
Yeah. They don't take it personally. Right. Even if you wholeheartedly disagree and it may seem like an argument to an outside bystander, you're just, you're just talking about something loudly. Yes. This this is why (laughs) Scott and I are often mistaken for enemies because we do this well. (laughs) Because we argue so much. The the biggest problem to me is, is when you have situations like this where people in, in very powerful positions can take a very minority opinion and they can thrust that upon the majority and it can have really adverse effects like that. And that's when people need to stand up, take these grassroots efforts to make sure people know what is going on there. Because it's so easy to obfuscate the reality of the situation when you control the media, when you have vast sums of money to silence people as governments do. And and that's exactly what's happening in Canada. So so this is a, a I have completely changed my thought on this opinion. I still don't like the title of it, but it is a wonderful video, and I, and I hope it gets out to the right people. Cool. Does it seem like the grassroots effort is making a pretty big impact? Like, is it? Well, we'll see on October nineteenth. Um, you know, it's uh every if you do a Google search for for Harper, uh, Canadian Prime Minister on the internet, this whole science thing's really been raised to the top. It's kind of floating to the surface, and that's really good because. People need to know about it, and hopefully, you know, with that and other things he's done, it will be enough to to get someone in there who's more uh, more reasonable. So cool, okay. yeah. yeah. So uh, Christian, what what are you gonna how are you gonna segue out of that, friend? Um, I'm going to segue out of that by saying now for something completely different. All right, <laughs> <laughs> I've been holding on to that Monty Python quote for a month. <laughs> okay. Um, but in all seriousness, I want to talk about um, RNA in semen, which sounds really odd. But one of the things that has been in our podcast recently, last year probably at this point, is the Ebola thing. And a lot of people were infected. It seems to have been sort of subsiding. It's not as dramatically uh, problematic as it once was, but that doesn't mean it can't come back. And finding ways that Ebola can be spread is sort of high on people's barometers right now. And one of the things that they recently found was that out of a total of 93 participants, 46 of them tested positive um, for Ebola in their semen after they had survived the disease. Um, like nine months or something, right? Well, <laughs> as the as the time period goes, the amount of people went down. Obviously, um, forty or sixty five percent of them were four to six months after the disease, and twenty six percent of them were nine months, and one participant was ten months. So and he did, and he didn't have any right in his system at ten months. No, 10 months was where it became, yeah, where it became indeterminate. So, okay. yeah, you're looking at something that lasted many months. Now, the question is, what does that mean? Because, you know, you have all kinds of things in all kinds of body fluids, and that doesn't necessarily mean that those things are going to get into somebody else. Getting Ebola is not as easy as getting sneezed on, right? It requires physical contact with infected body parts like internal organs. So once you become infected, you, let me rephrase that. Once you become visibly infected, once you are coughing, vomiting, and so on and so forth, contact with those fluids can 
cause infection. So until you are obviously sick, it requires contact with internal organs. Well, after you're sick, of course, the virus should be out of your system at a relatively quick pace. But unfortunately, um, this shows that it's not. And the only way we have of judging whether or not it's infectious is to compare it to the amount of virus that you would find in the blood of an infected person. So the way they do this is with qPCR. And I am not going to go into all of the complicated logarithmic mathematical things that they do to determine what um, what level something is in qPCR. But I'm going to talk about it just in general real quick to give you an idea of how to interpret these results. So when you do qPCR, what you're doing is you're taking a sample and you are copying a particular source of RNA or DNA um, many, 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 many times. And eventually, once you've copied it enough, it becomes visible because they use a fluorescent tag on each copy. So simply put, the less copies there are in the initial sample, the longer it takes for the signal to show up because it takes more cycles to replicate it. So you figure every time they cycle it, it doubles. Okay, so if you have one of these transcripts floating around, after one cycle of qPCR, you have two, technically three. Then after that, you have five plus three is eight. So it's, it's pretty quick. It's almost exponential in the way it increases. But the amount of starting material determines how quickly it reaches that threshold. That value is called the CT or the cycle threshold. And what that means is that's how many cycles it took for the signal to become visible. Which is directly proportional to how much the original starting right. material had. That's not exactly correct. It's in, it's the cycle threshold of logarithmic volume, blah, blah, blah. Don't care. The point is the higher that number, the lower the starting material. Does that make sense? Because it takes more it took, more, it took more and more doublings right. to reach that threshold. Right. right. So a low... CT in the 28, 26 range means that there was a, a sizable portion in the original sample. In the 30 range, um, it tends to become harder to interpret. And so what this paper reports is that they found this virus with a cycle, a CT value of between 32 and 37. Oh, that's that's not good. That's not most people wouldn't accept that. Well, it in terms of the lab work that you and I have done, that would be outside the linear range and would be problematic. This is a slightly different. They're doing this test a little differently, um, because they have one replicon and it's not it's it's easy to do. But right, and what Christian's saying is generally. If it takes 37 doublings of that cDNA or RNA or whatever you're looking at to make it really recognizable by the detector through the fluorescence, that's too many to be considered that you can reliably see how much the starting material was. It's right. what normally around low 30s 30 and beyond is that. The cutoff. 
Yeah, and then anything more than that because there would be so little starting material you couldn't reliably say how much there was. But you said that they're able to. This is a special Right, case. what it technically does is it falls out of the linear range for the detector. So right. if you Which, if you created the standard curve, it would be this nice linear area and everything would fall on that curve. Anything above 30 tends to fall off the linear curve. So you can't right. make a quantitative statement. However, they're not trying to make a quantitative statement. They're making a qualitative statement. Or almost a binary. It's there or it's right. not, right? And in this case, um, what they have found is that qPCR results for virus in blood is around, oh God, I just had the number, 37, I'm lying, 35. So if you have virus in the blood and the CT value is higher than 35, you are not infectious. Okay, that's the standard. So the cutoff's 35, Roughly. they all have more than that well, so i mean generally they're not infectious okay in in the two to three month range they're at 31 so you're looking at about 31 to 34 up to six months which is interesting but we're talking about semen right um so wouldn't you think that if that's the case that there'd be a whole lot more ebola going on or they think that, and that's why this is a confusing result. But as always, but as you but as you started out, Christian, Ebola is not as easy to get as say the flu. You really need right body fluid to body fluid contact. It, the airborne infectious rate is extremely low for Ebola. Right, and we're talking about a, we're talking about sexually sexual transmission, and there have there's like one confirmed case of Ebola transmission through sexual contact and the numbers you gave too were not just for semen they were for blood plasma levels so you would have to have like ebola and uh uh, the consumption you know what i mean like tuberculosis and you'd have to have you'd have to be having blood droplets spewed yes i understand while even though you are technically contagious but theoretically in a sexual contact just like hiv if you if there's a sizable portion of it an infectious portion of it in the semen and you get it in a cut or an abrasion or whatever, you could transmit it. It is the mechanism is there for that to occur. Um, right. If you want to come into contact with someone's internal organs, that's a quick way to do it. I know that sounds terrible, but it's true. So yeah, it is, it is a, a reason for concern and it's maybe a, a bigger reason for concern because there are so many people right now walking around who were just recently infected. So it's sort of a post-outbreak issue that before the outbreak, you know, it, it, it wasn't a big enough deal and people were sick and they weren't, you know, engaging in these activities. But now that there's so many people who are post-Ebola, having that around in semen could cause a significant increase in cases sort of going forward but we'll see how that pans out it, it's not 100 well, percent. it's just an something they specific result something they specifically said in the article was that they don't know why the rna is there right and they just know that it is there and to me that's the most interesting question in that if you survive ebola you've created antibodies either through a drug or a treatment you've been given or because you just your body was able to to combat it you created antibodies to destroy the ebola virus now 
RNA is extremely fragile. It's extremely fragile within the the blood. Uh, Christian, you got to go, right? I do, but we can finish. Okay. This. I got a couple. Okay. All right. Um, it's it's incredibly fragile. It breaks down very easily. There is not like DNA. RNA goes away very very quickly. So in my opinion, it's probably very likely that virus is still around to create this RNA. I don't think nine months after you have an Ebola outbreak in your body, you would still have viable RNA around, which is really the transcript of the of, of the it's it's the source code of the virus right. that would not be around if it wasn't currently being transcribed or replicated on some level or if it was so, packaged in a virus because they're using these samples but they're pulling that rna out of the virus protein coat so it's not going to float around as rna loose rna and even if it was who cares you don't have reverse transcriptase to do anything with it anyway so they're right, assuming you, it's coming out of viral protein coats that they're dissolving as part of their process and they're assuming it represents live virus in the in the live virus right because it's it's there's not a lot of scenarios where live virus would not be involved in this so to me that's the interesting question how does the virus maintain survival or viability in your blood plasma and the semen for that amount of time without having a clinical level of, of infection or viral infection in the individual i don't understand how that takes maybe, place maybe it, it's it, infecting cells in the reproductive tract and pumping out viruses at a low level for a certain period of time that takes longer to clear up. Maybe it's in some sort of cell type that's more sheltered from macrophages or whatever, um, you know, immune response you're having. Yeah, it's an interesting point and it's a good question. I, I don't know how you could produce something at such low levels, how your body could suppress the rapid doublings of the of the RNA or the sorry the virus's survival to a point where you have it in your blood you have it in the semen but it's not causing deleterious effects for the individual who's well, herp infected herpes That's, does that too herpes yeah but herpes hides no but See, I mean, herpes what, herpes shuts itself down once you have an infection that infection once you beat the infection your body is still shedding viruses for up to a week so up to a week, yeah, but we're talking many months, and this virus is not shutting down because if you were to take uh, a neuronal sample from someone, if my understanding is, who has uh, who has uh, it, it, H or uh, what's one, um, what were we just talking herpes. about? Herpes, you wouldn't have transcript level, you wouldn't be able to detect transcript levels of it when you were not within a range of period after the outbreak. And for you to have it nine months after that, well, that's a very... nine months it became undetectable. But I, I, it doesn't seem that unrealistic to me because you can shed viruses for a long time. Yeah. They don't have to actually even be replicating because there could be a reservoir of viruses in the cells that are being shed. So I don't know, maybe... Well, it'll be cool to find out one way or another. Yeah. I'm sure they'll keep digging at this. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks, Christian. Hey, no problem. Yes, thank you. I'm pretty sure that, uh, well, I heard that Scott actually doubled Christian's salary to get him off the show and tripled Dell's <laughs> to not even come onto this show so that he can win the science game himself Heck today. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yes, uh, everyone, well, screw it. Everyone's salary's doubled. Yes. Okay. Hey, have fun. I'll see you guys. Bye, Whatever Christian. we've agreed upon. Bye. All right. Bye, Christian. 
So, uh, Carolina, what what did you want to talk That's about today? That's a really easy segue. <laughs> That's not even fair. All right, I'm talking about well, well, no, no, no. Well. You to be, I maybe I've made this clear in the past. <laughs> you need to segue from the previous story, not from whatever inane injection I've put into there. Well, I mean, a, a good part of the story was about RNA and about Ebola RNA being found in the semen and. Uh, I'm going to talk about RNA interference technology um, and how it may not be dead. It's kind of interesting. I guess uh, RNA interference technology was sort of had its peak in uh, 2006, and then interest was sort of lost in it. Most uh, companies that were interested in trying to use this technology to develop Therapies gave up on it over the past five years. Uh, Roach ended its work in 2010, and Novartis and Merck uh, gave up in 2014. But um, I'm going to give a little bit of background about what uh, RNAi is and why it might still be of use at this point. So RNAi stands for RNA interference, although I like RNA interesting. Sounds pretty good, too. (laughs) (laughs) And basically... um, in the, in the body, your, your body, the central dogma of biology is that you start with DNA and then it gets transcribed into RNA and then from RNA into protein. And in eukaryotic organisms, DNA is double-stranded and RNA is single-stranded generally. And uh, your body will recognize double-stranded RNA as foreign and, and will typically destroy it. So um, in this system... Uh, if there's a, a, a viral infection in the body, um, your your body's able to basically uh, cut up uh, long strands of this RNA into short snips of uh, about 20 nucleotides long of RNA and takes one strand of it and then it can match it to another portion of RNA and then that basically marks the messenger RNA for degradation. The messenger RNA is, is the RNA that ends up ultimately being uh, translated into protein. So- Generally for degradation, every once in a blue moon it can make it actually increase expression, but Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Generally, almost always. Generally, this this is my uh, very basic <laughs> understanding of it. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Nope. Sounds good to me. You have these small RNA segments that bind to messenger RNA. They mark it for degradation. It either gets cut in half or it's unable to be transcribed or translated. Excuse me. Right. So it was thought that this could be a really great. Um, great way to target specific proteins associated with diseases and basically disable those proteins, degrade them, um, because you could potentially create a very specific segment of single-stranded uh, RNA that could then bind the mRNA that would code for the protein, and uh, you could basically mark it for destruction, effectively eradicating it. Um, but it's been very difficult to find ways to get that um, to, to get the RNA bits into the cytoplasm of the cell without it being destroyed. Um, and so now there's, there's basically some new hope. There are uh, a few different companies that are coming up with different methods that you could actually uh, overcome the problem of getting the RNA, the, the siRNA across cell membranes where they're needed. 
Okay, the first way is basically that you would encase the RNA in a little fatty capsule that's less than a micron across. And then these capsules could be absorbed by uh, your liver cells. And uh, typically the liver is, is the target for um, RNAi therapies. So that's one idea. How, how realistic do you think that sounds? Uh, it's been tried. And in some cases, it's been successful, but I have other thoughts, so I will let you continue. Okay. The other method um, is... As far as the delivery method, that works fine. You tar- you put them in liposomes, which are these little fat balls, mm-hmm. and then they you can target the liposomes to certain tissue types, and then it goes there and it does what it's supposed to do. Yes, that, that has been used. So, but so would the problem then be once it gets inside of the cell? Uh, that is part of it. Uh, I, I'll just say it. The, my understanding from about microRNAs and, and, and silencing gene expression, all this stuff, is that they target, microRNAs target a whole bunch of stuff. And we don't always know exactly what they're going to target. It's extremely hard to get the microRNAs to their target organ and stay in their target organ and only be delivered there. Uh, and once they do get there, the microRNA rarely has a single target they're so small they're like 20 nucleotides long that they can often bind outside of what you're trying to knock down and they they'll have lots and lots of targets and so it's very hard to get it to the tissue you want and have it to only knock down the translation of the protein that you're trying to knock down Mm -hmm. that has been the real hard sell point for this so far that makes sense so so another method the second method would make sense for targeting the sirna molecules to uh whatever target organ typically the liver um and this would be to attach the sirna molecules to other molecules that are uh taken up by liver cells Uh so this is the the idea with um a treatment that's being uh, tested out for reducing LDL cholesterol. Uh, basically, what they're doing is they're they're trying to target uh, protein PCSK9, which regulates the production of um, some receptor molecules on the surface of liver cells. And so, basically, when you have more of these receptors, they they pull more LDLs from your bloodstream to be destroyed in the liver. Um, so if there's less PCSK9, that means you get more receptors present and then theoretically lower LDL levels. So the SINRA would be, what they would be trying to do is target it for the protein that would degrade these receptors. Okay. Or, oh, I'm sorry, that, that would that would allow for more receptors. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, does no, that, that makes sound sense. realistic? <laughs> yeah, it, it does in a, in a sense. And you'll find that if you... Google um, siRNAs, miRNAs, all these variants of, of these small RNA segments that will degrade transcripts. That the biggest problem you have is what I was talking about, which is non-specificity. And if you can get hyper tissue-specific specificity, and you have the right type of siRNA, miRNA, then you can have fairly decent results. But that is a big if there, and the other issue is that these RNAs degrade very quickly. They'll often use something called a lock nucleic acid, which is which is a modified RNA that lasts much longer before it gets degraded by the body. Just like we were talking about in Ebola, how the RNA, it just very rapidly gets de- degraded. The um, ribonucleic acid for RNA 
is very unstable and and there are tons of of enzymes in the body that will rapidly turn it into non-RNA. And so if you use a locked nucleic acid in combination with high tissue specificity, that's when you tend to get these best results here. But that's uh, that's still kind of cutting edge. And I'm not saying it's not going to work, but a lot of people have abandoned kind of this 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 gene silencing, siRNA, miRNA type work because it is so difficult to not just get it to your target tissue, keep it along long enough, around long enough, and even when it gets to that target tissue, ensure that your 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 interfering RNA is only going to target the transcript of interest. And so all three of those make this a very difficult problem. So the the idea that you're talking about would that be to have the cells make their own slightly longer, more specific? uh snippets or uh yeah well so there that's like in, kind of introducing it from outside the generally body? it's still introducing it i mean you what you're talking about at that point is gene therapy mm-hmm. where you're actually creating a your something to enhance the expression of our microRNAs or siRNAs and and that is another level of interest and i know people are looking at that as well to have the cell make their own endogenous uh, siRNAs so that you um, uh, that you you don't have to introduce it and it's a problem that will take care of itself at that point but uh, but no it's it's all it's all challenging it's very interesting and there's still a lot of hope out there for it but it's when this came online people thought it was going to be the be all end all and cure everything and it's proven to be much more challenging than that and probably not going to fix the world like we hoped it would so that that's why people are a little skeptical about it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It seems like there's more interest in uh, CRISPR now. CRISPR is a huge thing right now, yeah. And if we can actually do CRISPR in humans and have it work, that will be a very, very interesting time we live in, yes. So research by itself, CRISPR has been great. We talked about CRISPR in the past. I don't need to go over it now, but it's it's a very interesting way to knock down or knock out a gene, so... Yes. Well, that is all I have. I know that um, these are these are kind of kind of cool ideas to read about in light of all the stuff I have to study for the MCAT. So it's kind of nice to put into a, more of a present day, uh, yeah, clinical real life perspective, yeah, yeah. yeah, context. Absolutely. So uh, shoot, my last story. I just realized, <laughs> even though I promised, it was the gauging one that I waited for to have Christian here. Oh, Christian. I'm going to hold on to it because I really want, you know, I, I guess I'm putting way too much weight into this, which is like, well, Christian's gay. Therefore, he must have a more valid opinion about the gay gene. But more, I just want to have a fun argument with him because he loves to talk about this sort of stuff and he loves epigenetics and it will be great. So we'll save the gay gene bit for when Christian gets back. Sounds good. Our so are we going to play? Hold, I do have a question. Are we going to play beta sandwich science history? And does that mean that I'm going to win no matter what? Yes. Absolutely. I just want to see how well you do. Well, I okay. So I'm not putting an asterisk next to my win. I don't care who no, says what. No, it's a legitimate I'm win. I'm counting you know, this because, as a legitimate win. Because you showed up. Okay, you were here. <laughs> That's right. And you stayed the course. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to play Beta Sandwich Science History. Game. <laughs> All right, so this is um, a medicine-themed one. What have you been thinking about? It's like when okay, someone so wants to get three, pregnant, it's all about babies. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. I've been dreaming. I've been dreaming about this test and I've been like, I've, I've had lectures in my mind and my sleep and I'm sure that my mind is like teaching me all the wrong things. So it'll be interesting to see. And it's funny how, how stressful it is now and how much of your soul it's sucking away. And in 10 years, when you're a physician and you're out of your residency and you're doing your thing, it will seem like such a small little insignificant blip that you should have never stressed about. <laughs> but yet, it's impossible not to do and it's killing you right now. So go team. Yep. All right. So more importantly. So medicine, medicine and history. Medicine. Okay. These are the three things you will put in order and tell me the year in which they happened. Okay. Okay. Aspirin was developed. Acetylsalicylic acid. C. Is aspirin from the willow tree. The okay. stethoscope was invented. Oh, okay. Okay. Aspirin and the stethoscope. And blood cells were first discovered. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Year and the order. Yes, please. Okay. So you were very careful to use the word aspirin. And I'm hoping that's what you meant. Because salicylic acid, which you get from the willow bark and a couple other sources, has been taken for hundreds and hundreds of years. They used to grind up willow bark and you would drink it as a broth. The problem with it is that even though it contains salicylic acid, which, by the way, is one of the major components of a lot of uh, uh, face washes and stuff because it, it's a dehydrant and it helps uh, it, it helps uh, dry out this oily skin. But anyways, salicylic acid, it gives you a horrible stomachache. And they say when they talk about the cure is worse than the disease, if you have a headache and then your headache's cured, but now you have a really bad stomachache, then nobody <laughs> nobody wants to take it. So they were able to add an acetyl group to acetyl to salicylic acid, making acetylsalicylic acid, and that's what we know as aspirin, and that does not affect your stomach. And I know that took some organic chemistry in order to do that. So I'm going to go on the basis of that as being what you actually meant. Yes, very good. Okay, and with that being said, uh, I'm going to start with the stethoscope because it is technologically the least complicated. It is a matter of having a little hole in a membrane and routing that to your ear holes and listening. And to me, that logically would be the first thing to come around. All right, so number one, the stethoscope. The stethoscope, and I am going to say, I'm going to go back far for this one. I'm going to say 1685. Wonderful. Okay, number two. Number two for me is going to be the red blood cells. Ooh, yes, because we've had microscopes for a while, and red blood cells are fairly easy to discern with the most rudimentary of microscopes, and it would be a very interesting scientific discovery. And I'm going to put that one as 1831. Wonderful. Okay, number two, blood cells, 1831. The last one being acetosilic acid for the aforementioned regions that it, it, it caused a certain, it required a certain level of organic chemistry knowledge. And I don't remember reading about it happening really long ago. And I'm going to say 1880 for acetosilic acid as wow. my guess. So very nice. Well, I am very impressed with your explanation of your reasoning and <laughs> and they're all wrong <laughs> no no you're you were okay so for acetosalicylic acid you were very very close okay. 1899 
Ooh, I'll take that. Yes. All right. Felix Hoffman gets credit for that. Thank you, <laughs> and, Mr. Okay, Hoffman. So that is, you're right. That is the most recent, but you got the other two switched. Okay. And it's funny because you actually switched them almost exactly to the year. Blood cells <laughs> were first discovered, visualized in 1670. And the stethoscope was invented in 1826, although I guess oh we'd argue gosh, that so 1816. Uh-huh. Um, that really surprised me with the stethoscope, stethoscope if I can say it. Uh, yeah. Do you know the real name for a stethoscope? Um, I know that initially they were just calling it, um, oh, like, um, what did he call it? The doctor that invented it was calling it, hang on, let me look here. Oh, there it is. Oh, I had to Google it. No, maybe, but they're the proper name for a stethoscope, and I had to look this up because it's only something doctors and nurses know is a sphygmomometer. Sphygmomometer. Oh, I yes. love it. Yes, and I'm sure you'll have to learn that in med school. Yes. Sphygmomometer. Yeah, but you know, your reasoning was was spot on because uh, this doctor came up with it because he knew that the the sound could be amplified through a solid. So he he didn't want to put his ear to a woman's chest. And so to try was to just a gentleman. Yes. So to, I bet to, all to the other doctors after it was discovered are like, what's up, dude? <laughs> yeah, Why do you have to do that? <laughs> I used to spend 45 minutes listening to this 23 year old's heartbeat and she was perfectly fine. Uh, yes. <laughs> I must caress your lower back as I listen to your heart. Well, congrats on your win, Scott. It's my first win. Hold on. Let me pull up my special chart here. <laughs> so on today I'm putting Scott. Barnett as the win, and I've played two games and I've won once, which means that I have a win rate of fifty percent of my games played. You're still winning at sixty percent. You played five games and you won three, but I'm nipping at your heels. <laughs> Christian's still uh, 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 zero and two. He's played two games and he's won zero. So, well, that was fun. Thanks for playing. Yeah, well, suck it, losers. I won. Yeah, you suck it, losers. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, shoot, we'll have to call it at that. I wish I could have talked about the gay gene, but we're going to have to wait. So next week, we'll make sure we do it no matter what, which is exactly what I said this week. So you know what that's <laughs> Yes, that carrot we're going to keep keep uh, waving keep around in front of our listeners. Dangling Keep there, listening. Yes. So keep listening. And I've not told you to do this in a while, and I'm not actually telling you to do it now, but rating us on iTunes sure is nice. Not telling you you have to do it. Not going back on my word not to bring it up again because I'm just telling this to Carolina. Oh, We're having a, thanks, Carolina, Scott, if you haven't nice rated thought. us yet, you should. You know, I've thought about that too. You thought about how much it means. It means to everyone involved in the podcast. Have you? It is. It is. It really, uh, it really <laughs> pleases us. Oh, man. So are, are you going to do the Dell summary for us? No. You're like, not a chance. Not, not a chance. <laughs> I, All right. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, and we will be back next week for another very exciting episode. Thank you for tuning in. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, it's done. Oh, oh, okay. All right, I'm going to export the audio. I will... Um